Father, thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that we can thank you for so many things in our lives. We pray that as we come to the Bible this morning, you would be challenging us, you would be helping us to understand that the words spoken here would be your words and that we would leave um, being changed people. Amen. Okay, so over the past few weeks, um, we've been looking at game changers. We've been looking at different game changers in the Bible. Um, so we've looked at Samuel and Elisha, who were great prophets. We've looked at the book of Ruth and how the game has been changed by love. We've looked at Joseph, who God appointed in incredible places. We've, we've looked at how God uses individuals to do extraordinary things. And we've drawn parallels to the World Cup. We've looked at individuals like Ronaldo, like Messi, like Kylian and Mbappe, people who have defined and have shaped the game in the way that they have played. But this morning, I would love to shift gears a little bit. That over the past few weeks, we've been looking at individuals. This morning, I would like to look at winning the game as a team and how, as a church, we as a team are game changers. And to do that, I would love to look at Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is a letter. It is uh, written by Paul. Now, Paul was somebody who was a man chosen by God to tell other people who did not know Jesus who Jesus was. He was a huge leader in the early church, and he wrote many letters in the New Testament, Ephesians being one of them. And this morning, I'd like to look at two things. I'd love to look at how we are one hope and how we are one family. And I was really encouraged this morning as we were speaking out things that we are thankful for. We said we are thankful for each other, and we are thankful that we have a hope for the future. So I'd love to pack in, uh, unpack these things this morning. So, one hope, Ephesians. So we start in Ephesians chapter 1, and the first 14 verses of Ephesians in the original language are all one sentence. So you can imagine Paul getting really, really excited as he's saying this. It's this one breathless cry of praise to God. He says, God has given us every spiritual blessing. God has forgiven us. God has welcomed us into his family. And he says this on and on and on in this huge poem, this painting that he is showing us. It's Paul doing his 10,000 reasons of why God is good. And so we come to two verses in particular that I like to spend some time zoning in on, reflecting on. Verses 7 to 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace which he lavished on us. I'll just say that again because there's a lot there. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Now, if you're anyone like me, we often use words like redemption and not really stop to think about what they mean. Because we think about it, we talk about it a lot in our preaches, in our songs, on social media. We have nice quotes that we paint in our houses. Redemption. But what does redemption mean? And to help us understand this, I'm going to tell three stories which I think um, we shed light on who God is, who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done for us. So the first story um, is about a particular uh, team at the World Cup. It's about a particular manager. And if you haven't guessed already, this is the England football team. 
Well, my first memory of the World Cup was in 2006. I was six years old at the time, and I remember watching England play Portugal in the quarterfinal. And we get to penalties, and we lose on penalties. And I went into the back garden, and I cried. <laughs> and I think that sums up the experience of many fans who watch England. That time and time and again, we get so close, so close to glory, and then we get to penalties, and there's that sense of dread where we sort of know what's coming, we hope against all odds, but we know it's coming anyway, and we get knocked out. I'm reminded in particular of 1996, which Hannah touched upon last week, when England were not just playing in any old semi-final. This was a semi-final on home soil. And again, we get to penalties. And again, the sense of dread is coming back. And five England footballers stand up to take their penalties, and they're all brilliant penalties. And then one relatively average player called Gareth Southgate stands up with the opportunity to take his team through to a final on home soil. And he misses. And it's the same old story that England are failures, England are no hopes. When it matters most, they fail. But then fast forward 22 years, and we're in Russia. This is 2018. This time, England are playing a last of 16 game against Colombia. This time, we're in a penalty shootout again. And the feelings are back. The sweaty palms, the heart going nuts. The sense of dread is back. Where we sort of know what's going to happen. But this time, Jordan Pickford makes a save. Eric Dyer sends England through to their quarterfinal and their first ever World Cup penalty shootout win. But what's any of this got to do with redemption? What's any of this got to do with what Paul is saying here? Well, I found it really interesting how many pundits, many commentators talking about this story said there has been redemption for Gareth Southgate. There has been redemption for the England football team. And what I think that means is that England were in an absolute mess, absolute failures, no hopes. But something happens, which means that now they're winners. Now things are different. Now there's a new way of doing things. And so to help us understand this passage, we think of the church, that we were in an absolute mess, absolute no hopes, absolute failures. But Jesus dies, and we're winners, and there's a new way of doing things. We are the people who become game changers. The second story relates to the second part of this verse. God's grace that he lavished on us. Lavished there is a word that means poured out. I'm reminded of a story that I heard a while back of a grandfather and his grandson. And the grandson had um, cerebral palsy which means that the grandson is paralyzed as a baby. And it's during a time of worship that the grandson is holding his baby, his grandson. And he says three phrases over and over again. He says, God loves you, I love you, and you are really special to me. Over and over again, God loves you, I love you, and you are really special to me. And it's in that place where we realize that that was us, that we were incapable and powerless of doing anything in our own strength to save ourselves. But God, in his great grace, lavishes his love upon us and says, I love you, I love you, and you are really special to me. 
Redemption is us being in an absolute mess and Jesus' death making us game changers. It is about being incapable and powerless of doing anything in their own strength, but God lavishing his grace upon us. And finally, another story. A story that the Bible tells a lot over and over again. A story that reverberates throughout the whole of Scripture. This is the story of the Exodus. This is a story about how God chose a man called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt, out of slavery to the Egyptians, into obedience and freedom. And if you were a Jew living in Paul's day, this would have been in the fiber of your being. You would have been brought up on this story. Your parents would have taught it to you as you were growing up. This was in the culture. God brought Israel out of Egypt and into freedom. And so when Paul uses the word redemption, in him we have redemption. Suddenly, light bulbs are turning on. And people say, I know this story. I recognize this story. But Paul says this time, it's different. Because this time, it is the church as a people who are in a place of hopelessness and despair. But Jesus' death means we are in freedom and obedience. And why I think this is a really helpful way of understanding redemption Because I could talk here all day about me and my individual salvation. But Paul says it's not less than that, but it is more than that. Because God has saved a people. God has saved a community and a family to be game changers. Because this time there's a new way of doing things. So as a church, what is our one hope? The Bible talks about different ways, in different ways about hope. Sometimes it talks about the future and what Jesus will do in the future. But it also talks about what God has done in the past. That God has created a new people, a new family, a new way of doing things, a people who will become game changers. God has saved a people for a purpose. That is our one hope this morning. So it's no surprise that Paul spends the rest of his letter working this out in practice. He says, look, look at what Jesus has done on the cross for us. This is how it affects how we speak. This is how it affects our marriages. This is how it affects our home life, children, parents, and in Paul's culture, servants, masters. This is something that is like a pebble that drops in the lake and suddenly there are ripples. That's what the cross of Jesus is. You can think of Ephesians as sort of a funnel shape. That starts with the universal truths that we've been talking about and narrows down to the specifics of everyday life. And the next thing that Paul moves on to talk about is how as a church we are a new family. And I'll start by talking about Jews and Gentiles. Jews were people who were and are people who live under the Old Testament. And Jews, uh, Gentiles, are everyone else who aren't Jews. And in Paul's day, Jews and Gentiles didn't get along so well. Jews were very proud of the fact that they had the Sabbath, they had the law, they had the temple where God dwelt. And some some Jews of Paul's day had this hope that they would rise up, bat the Romans over their head, kick them out, and they would reign supreme, and all nations would come and worship their God, but Israel would be exalted. Gentiles were called dogs. But the real kicker, the real kick in the teeth, was that Gentiles were barred access to God's presence. There was a physical wall in the temple that stopped them from entering the presence of God. This is what the sign said. 
No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the wall around the temple. And this is the bummer. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. But Paul says, no, no, you've got it absolutely wrong. Utterly, absolutely wrong. And we have this verse in chapter 2, 19. You, talking to Gentiles, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. Paul is saying, because of the cross, God has taken Jew and Gentile, and he has made them into one new way of being family. And he goes on to say, this is one new humanity. What that means is this is a new way of being human. And if you're like me, sometimes we can hear these truths, and we can think, oh, isn't that nice? We hear, God has redeemed you, and you say, oh, isn't that nice? Isn't God nice? We have been one family. Isn't that nice? And sometimes we become so familiar with these truths that we can get just how countercultural, just how radical what Paul is saying here. And help us grasp this. It will help us understand the huge significance of what Paul is saying. I want to use an analogy which I don't think is too strong. This is the analogy of apartheid, a word that literally means separateness. It refers to a period in South Africa's history, which I reckon is within the living memory of most people in this room. Toilets and swimming pools, housing, employment, were all segregated along the lines of race. Mixed marriages were forbidden. But imagine going into that culture, a culture that says that black people and white people must be separate, deeply ingrained, and saying these words. You are not foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens, and you are all members of the same household. If we think that is countercultural, if we think that is radical, that's because it is. And that's how it would have been felt in Paul's day as well. Paul says that when this happens, it is beautiful. He refers to the church as God's artwork. He says the church reflects the multicolored wisdom of God. Paul says this is something to celebrate, that we are one family. So as a church, we have one hope. One hope that we have a people saved for a purpose. Part of that purpose is being family. And I believe that when we are family, that is when the game is changed. When we are family, that is when the game is changed. I'd love to spend some more time thinking about that, thinking about moments in the church's history and in the present day when they live out their vocation as being family and they see the game changed. I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the activists in the civil rights movement were Christians living out this belief in being one family. When we come to the civil rights movement this time in America, in 1964, a man called Andrew Young is recounting his testimony about when he was on a march with his church and they come against opposition. It's in the first person. 
Easter Sunday dawned with Martin Luther King in jail. We planned a march from New Pilgrim Baptist Church to the city jail for the afternoon of Easter Sunday. By the time church ended, some 5,000 people had gathered dressed in their best Sunday clothes. The marchers set out in a festive mood, but suddenly they saw police, fire engines and firemen with hoses in front of them blocking their path. Bill Connor bellowed, turn this group around. 5,000 people stopped and waited for instructions from their leaders. Wyatt Walker and I were leading the march. I can't say we knew what to do. I know I didn't want to turn the march around. I asked the people to get down on their knees and offer a prayer. Suddenly, Reverend Charles Billups, one of the most faithful and fearless leaders of the old Alabama Christian movement for human rights, jumped up and hollered, the Lord is with this movement. Off your knees, we are going on. Stunned at first, Bull Connor yelled, stop them, stop them. But none of the police moved a muscle. Even the police dogs that had been there were now perfectly calm. I saw one fireman, tears in his eyes, just let the hose drop at his feet. Our people marched right between the red fire trucks, singing, I want Jesus to walk with me. Bill Connor's policeman had refused to arrest us. His fireman had refused to hose us, and his dogs had refused to bite us. It was quite a moment to witness. But I'll never forget one old woman who became ecstatic when she marched through the barricades. As she passed through, she shouted, Great God Almighty, done parted the Red Sea one more time. And I love how the go-to image for this story is what we've been looking at, is redemption. How because of what God has done, because of the new family he has created, that is when the game is changed. And in this story, I see the church. I see a church that can get up and march and shout, the Lord is with this movement. A church that can sing, I want Jesus to walk with me. And as we do that, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, the principalities and the powers can only stand and stare with their jaws dropped as God's church marches forward and shows them that new way of being family. And the way that the game was changed in this context was people seeing a new way of living, seeing a new way of being human. They saw something that they wanted for themselves. They saw unity where there was division. When we are family, heads start to turn. And the game has changed. The second story is uh, about a vicar, some of you might know, called Andrew White. He's known as the vicar of Baghdad, one of the most dangerous churches in the world. This particular vicar in one of his stories, was ambushed. He was captured. He woke up in a room with amputated toes and fingers, and he managed to escape. Amongst many other interesting facts about his life, he invited ISIS to dinner with him. All throughout his life, he was someone who brought people together. From his time at university, and he's still doing it now, what we call reconciliation. And one of his projects was in a church which he pastored, St. George's Church. He set up a clinic offering medicine to Christians and Muslims. Still to this day, 80 people are coming to the clinic to receive this treatment, free of cost, irrespective of your religion. 
He also set up a primary school offering education for Christians and Muslims. But what struck me about Andrew White was that he was part of a church family. He was an Anglican vicar, but he said there were so many different denominations in this church, and he wasn't sure there was even any Anglicans there. And you know what they called Andrew White? Their vicar. They called him Abuna, father. And I believe that when the church is confident in its identity as a family, that pours out into the world around us, and we bring people together who the world says should be kept separate. That is a game-changing moment when a church is family. And finally, you can think about adoption. My family, five years ago, welcomed Billy into our home, and two years later, we decided to adopt him. Paul talks about adoption in Ephesians. He says in chapter 1 that we have been adopted into God's family. And he says later that imitate God because you are beloved children. Paul says that there is something about being children of God which means that we pour that out into our society. Because the church in the fiber of our being knows what it is like to be welcomed and to be shown hospitality. And so we can show that welcome and that hospitality to some of the most vulnerable children in our society. Children who are in most need of our one hope, who are in most need of one family. And that is a game-changing moment because that leads to changed lives. So as a church, we can be game-changers by being one family. When we are family, heads start to turn and people start to want that from themselves. When we are family, we bring people together who the world says should be kept separate. And when we are family, we offer that welcome and that hospitality to some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And for Paul, it starts, all starts with the cross. Jesus has saved a people for a purpose, to live in a different way, to do things differently, to be a new way of being human. And when that happens, that is when the game is changed. The band could come up. And I'll finish in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us every spiritual blessing. We thank you that you are so, so good to us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross, which means that we become a people saved for a purpose, a people who do things differently, a people who show what it is like to be truly human. Father, thank you that as a team, we can be game changers. Father, we ask that as we go out into our, into our weeks, we ask that we would be able to live out that challenge of being one family and that you would change our society through that. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.